Next week, our board is meeting in Colorado Springs to finalize our strategic plan for the next couple of years. And it's very, very, very focused on youth, women, and short course racing. That Triathlon Show, episode 21. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. As always, I'm your host, Michael, and on today's show, I have an interview with the president of the USAT, the USA Triathlon, the national governing body for triathlon in the United States, Barry Siff. Just a quick note before we get into that, I got a very good email from a listener of the show, Chris from uh, Texas, and he has a topic suggestion, and he writes, one other topic I thought of which I have never heard anyone speak about is hosting professional triathletes if there is a race near your home. I live in the Woodlands, Texas. There is a full Ironman event each year, and the Texas 70.3 Galveston is not that far away either. I always thought it would be nice to reach out to a pro to stay in our house, and I was wondering if you ever do that or if you know a way to connect people, even amateurs from other countries would be fun. Although my wife would probably not allow a stranger in our house, but I would still try. Thanks again, Chris. So Chris, uh, thank you so much for your feedback and your and your topic request. Uh, I know that you have another question as well at, about transitions, and we will get to that in a future episode. Today's interview is so long that uh, I want to spend a bit more time talking transitions. And also, I want to return to this topic a bit later down the road, but I want to just plant a seed in the heads of the listeners that maybe we can do something together here as a That Triathlon Show community and everybody who would like to to offer pros accommodation if there is a race near your house. If I could maybe kind of try to arrange a spreadsheet of some sorts where where you could just register your name and your what race you have close to you and then and then I can try to get it out to the pros at least some pros that have been on the show would probably be very interested in that but also pros that are coached by coaches that I've had on the show and even just trying to do some sort of cold outreach if if that's something that people are really interested in I know for sure that I would really be glad to host a pro but here in Finland, where I currently live, there's not too many races that pros go to. In fact, there's none to be exact. So uh, unfortunately, that's not something that I can do, but I can sure help facilitate. And I would love to help facilitate age groupers and pros hooking up and getting to know each other and, and having age groupers host pros. I know the pros would appreciate it. Being a professional triathlete is not an easy job. It's not a well-paying job for most. So so it's uh, always something that, that helps if they can find accommodation from an age grouper that lives near to the race course. And having somebody that really understands what they go through before the race, that being an age group triathlete, that is definitely going to be an advantage for them when they decide on where they want to be accommodated. So call to action. If you are interested in hosting pros, then uh, please send me an email to michael at scientifictriathlon.com and I'll put together a spreadsheet of which people are interested and where they live, which races they have near them, and uh, then we can try to get it out in the hands of the pros. And for those pro triathletes that are listening to this, I know there might be a couple of you not naming names, 
But uh, if you are interested in being accommodated by some of our listeners, then let me know as well. My email address is michael at scientifictriathlon.com and that's Michael with a K. So with that said, let's dive into the interview with Barry. Just a quick note before we get into it. We had not just one, but several technical issues and uh, it's all on me. I'm trying a new podcasting software that I think will make the quality of the audio better down the road but these first few experiences with it wasn't uh, the best i probably should have tested it more thoroughly before using it on barry but uh, barry was uh, very generous with his time so i'm really really thankful for that barry and uh, i was also happy that he gave me a chance to talk to you a second time almost a week later from our original recording date so it wasn't all bad and uh, but that that's the reason why there will be some different kind of sounds uh, the we used a different recording software basically for the first part then for the second part of the interview and on a couple of occasions we are cut out mid-sentence basically so you would bear with us in, on those locations but in the in the recording but you will get the gist of what we're talking about anyway so it's not a big deal and uh, one more thing I want to clarify, even though we're talking to the president of the USAT, this is definitely an episode that I think that all international listeners should listen to because we get so much into the essence of triathlon and what triathlon can do to grow as a sport worldwide. And also some really cool stuff. We get a bit into Barry's adventure racing background as well. So there are some really fun details and uh, you, I'm sure that you will enjoy the episode. Welcome to That Triathlon Show, Barry. Good to be here, Michael. Thank you. So you're a president of the board of the USAT and you're also a member of the ITU board. Can you uh, give us a bit of a, of a more detailed background of what, what you're doing in triathlon and what your background is? Well, my background is, you know, I had a big business career that ended in 1998. I had already started triathlon as an athlete in 1986. So I've been doing triathlon for about 30 years very seriously. I, I came from a, a marathon background. And uh, yeah, I, I started putting on races after my business career ended and with my wife, and we got pretty successful. We had eight really good races in Boulder, Colorado, a couple outside of Boulder. We were there when, when Boulder really became the hotbed of triathlon. You know, we had you know, the first time Chrissy Wellington had gotten beat, for example, at a half Ironman, you know, Julie Dibbins beat her at our half. And, you know, everybody raced it. Tim DeBoom raced it. And, you know, pretty much everybody in Boulder and elsewhere. And so, yeah, it was a great business. And we finally sold it to Ironman. But before that, I got involved with the USA Triathlon as a race director. I got on the race director committee became chair of that pretty quickly, quickly got elected to the board of directors. Within a year, I was vice president. Within two years, I was president. And, you know, I got really active. I pride myself in being a pretty good leader and getting things done. And I think that, you know, people recognize that and the board recognized it. And then ultimately, ITU recognized it and asked me to, uh, to be on their board. There was an opening and I had the opportunity to get pointed to it. And then I got reelected a couple of times. And most recently in Madrid, I was elected to another four-year term. So I'm on through Tokyo, which is exciting. And uh, I love the ITU work at that level and USA Triathlon as well, as well as CAMTRI, which is the America's equivalent of the European Triathlon Union. 
And that's all I do. You know, I spend every day, seven days a week, trying to help grow the sport of triathlon, both here in the United States and around the world. I'm committed to it. And that's, you know, it's it's following my passion, which, you know, I've tried to do ever since uh, my business career ended. It sounds fantastic. That keeps you busy for sure. Let's uh, dive into these uh, different roles that you have in uh, in each in order. So if you start with ITU, for example, what yeah. what do you do in ITU? And what does ITU do for those people in the audience that don't know that? Well, ITU being the International Triathlon Union is really the governing body of the sport of triathlon in the world. You know, it's recognized by the IOC, which is the International Olympic Committee. And so it's the it's the body that determines and got the Olympics, got triathlon into the Olympics in 2000. It started in 1989. It's a relatively young organization that Les McDonald, I was just telling my wife a couple days ago, I mean, Les started the ITU out of his pocket. You know, Lorene Barnett, and he and a few others up in Canada working out of, I think, Lorene's basement or something and, uh, you know, spending their own money to help this sport become legit and get into the Olympics. And uh, that was their whole, you know, foresight and their plan and their mission. And they did it and they established rules and requirements. And it's a really buttoned up organization. I mean, if you've ever watched a world triathlon series race, extremely professional, extremely high class, the athletes are, you know, the best in the world. And uh, ITU is, is, has a president, Marisol Casado, who also happens to be very, very high up and very involved in the Olympic uh, movement, in the International Olympic movement. She's the highest ranking female executive in sport, in the Olympic sports, which is very, very impressive. Uh, and from day one, the ITU has been extremely based on gender equality from day one. And so we have you know, rules in place. We don't, I don't even think we need the rules because we live by it. And that is having, you know, e the right number of females and males on the boards and on our committees. And every committee must have a mix of males and females. And, you know, it's pretty awesome how it's run. We just got back from a board meeting. We have a couple board meetings a year. I also sit, I'm the liaison to the multi-sport committee, which oversees things like duathlon and long course and uh, aquabike and aquathlon, et cetera, cross try. And I'm also now the liaison to the women's committee, which I'm proud of. So we meet, you know, periodically. We just had a meeting in Korea where we decided, uh, you know, where winter triathlon championships will be in 2018. We discussed things such as the relationship between ITU and Ironman. Uh, we also set the rules for the sport. You know, the, the governing rules for most of the national federations, the, there are something like 140 countries that are represented by the ITU. When we were in Madrid, 120 of those countries were there and voted. So it's a hugely international organization. And um, yeah, I mean, we're, we're all about growing the sport. The main focus is, is the Olympics, but we go way beyond that. Of course, USA Triathlon is is our national federation, just like uh, you know these 140 countries have national federations. Ours is the largest by far in the world, the strongest in terms of membership, and uh, it's a pretty big organization. Where most of these federations around the world might have 
you could even have volunteers for staff. We have 55 people, you know, in our office in Colorado Springs. We have a full-time large staff and uh, we have 175,000 annual members, another 350,000 people who do at least one or two or three events a year and pay different fees for that. So we touch, you know, half a million people here in the United States every year. So, you know, that's that gets complicated. I mean, this last weekend, for example, we had our collegiate national championships and we had 1,500 college students competing, university students competing for, you know, I think there were over 100 universities represented. And that was our collegiate championship. And we do things like that. We do lots of youth activities, lots of youth races. And uh, yeah, it's a pretty complicated organization. And our board of directors kind of oversees that and sets the direction and makes sure we're going in the right direction. So if you can pinpoint what USAT does to a few short bullet points and in the order of how much resources you put into them, what would those be? Well, that's a great question. It's a very timely question. Next week, our board is meeting in Colorado Springs to finalize our strategic plan for the next couple of years. And it's very, very, very focused on youth, women, and short course racing. Youth, because, you know, that's the future of our sport. We see a lot of kids in swim programs. We see a lot of kids out there doing other exercise. And we're going after that youth market in a very, very aggressive way and putting money behind that. Uh, women, we recognize that the running community, at least at the half marathon distance, is more than 50%, close to 62% women. And a large number of runners, you know, ultimately become triathletes. So we're making a very concerted approach toward running races to attract women to triathlon. And we're going to have a very robust marketing campaign in that regard. And lastly, short course racing. And I think the, I mean, just to bottom line it, you know, I love Ironman. I mean, I'm one of those guys that in 1997 got an Ironman tattoo on my shoulder after doing Ironman Germany. And, um, you know, I, 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 and I sold my races to Ironman. I love Ironman. But we've got to redefine triathlon as triathlon. It's not just Ironman. And I'm, I'm, it bothers me when I talk to people and, You know, they, they say, well, I've only done a sprint or I've only done a short race. Well, it, it's not only, it's a triathlon. And we need to redefine short course racing as, as triathlon. And, and Ironman does not equal triathlon. Ironman is a long distance ultra triathlon. So marketing is a big, big uh, push for us right now. Yeah, I'm really passionate about that as well, that Ironman does not equate to triathlon because that's something that in the end will help us grow the sport if we can get people to realize that a sprint triathlon is, is just as much of a triathlon as, as an Ironman is. And try telling Gwen Jorgensen that she hasn't done the triathlon yet. And she's yeah, abs absolutely, absolutely. And the, and the reality is, I know our CEO constantly says this, I, I, I mean this with all res due respect to, to Ironman, but... You know, the, the Ironman champions who are coming now and who are going to be in the future are former ITU racers who can no longer compete at that level. You know, Jan Ferdino won the gold at the ITU, but then moved on to Ironman and he wouldn't be as competitive today at, at ITU. And, and yet he obviously is phenomenal at Ironman. Same with Daniela Reef. And now this year you see You know, Alistair Brownlee and Javier Gomez going into the 70.3 and, you know, they're not, they're going to win. 
I mean, they're, they're, it'll be tough to beat those guys. So, yeah, I think uh, we've got to increase the respect of short course racing, including sprints. I mean, <laughs> as you know, doing a sprint all out is one hell of a race. It's redlining all the way. Absolutely. It's a great accomplishment. All right, we got cut off, cut off there by some connection issues and some other issues that we didn't really get resolved before um, five or six days later or so. So now we're actually continuing the recording on Monday, the 1st of May, when we first did the, the initial part of the recording a, a week or so ago. So in case we repeat ourselves, uh, please uh, bear with us to the listeners. But Essentially, where we left off, I was uh, about to ask you about what the current status of triathlon in uh, the United States is, like participant-wise and in general. Yeah, yeah, no, good, good question. You know, I've been talking about it a lot lately because after many, many, many years of, of really good growth in triathlon, we've kind of flattened out a little bit and, uh, in fact, saw a little bit of a decline last year. It's not super surprising, cycling and running have seen a decline in participation in the United States, more so than we have. And we attribute that, I think, pretty solidly to the number of options that have come out here in the States, and I'm sure around the world, just a lot of different ways to be fit. CrossFit is extremely, you know, popular. Some of the obstacle racing, Spartan racing, uh, Tough Mudder, Color Runs, things like that which are awesome. You know, I'm all about getting people fit and healthy, and it's great that people are active. But as a result, I think they're maybe doing a, a little less triathloning, a little less running and cycling and just doing different things. You know, yoga is very popular. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think we're facing a, a little bit of a challenge now to, to get that sport growing again. And that's why I mentioned our strategic planning efforts, which we have some, I think, some solid plans on, on uh, again, how to to grow our sport even more here in the States and again, internationally. Yeah. So how does that compare when you're seeing it, uh, the participation rate flatten out or even decline somewhat compared to the rest of the world? Is the same phenomenon present in other parts of the world as well for triathlon? No, no, no. I'm hearing in some spots where, where it's probably more mature, you know, like some parts of Europe and maybe a little bit in Australia, New Zealand, but generally around the world, it's growing. I mean, You know, obviously, Asia is a big target right now, having, you know, the Wanda group out of China buying Ironman. You know, Ironman is doing a, a huge amount of focus in China and throughout Asia. And so, yeah, I mean, I think there's going to be great growth outside North America, which is, you know, fantastic. I, uh, you know, the sport is definitely growing worldwide. There's no doubt about it. I was on the phone yesterday with an American who's in Ethiopia, and she helped you know, working on a, and did a triathlon in Ethiopia a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, one of our commitments here in the United States is to help grow triathlon in Africa. And I think we're going to see that over the coming years. South America is definitely growing. And, you know, ITU is doing a really, really good job of developing triathlon around the world. Cuba is another really good example where, you know, five, six years ago, I don't know if there was much triathlon. And now, You know, they've got a very strong triathlon federation putting on some great races. They had one uh, about a month or so ago that had, I don't know, I think a thousand people, many from the United States and Canada and elsewhere. So, you know, definitely the sport is strong. It's growing. ITU is providing great leadership. 
here in the United States. We just got a lot going on here. That's all. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think you're totally right. We have the same kind of the same situation in Finland, although I don't have any statistics, but uh, that's just the overall perception that, that it is kind of at least flattening out and the same age groups have been the largest age groups for many years now, and, and they obviously keep moving up the age groups. It's the same generation. Exactly. Exactly. That's interesting you point that out, because that is, that is what we're seeing. You know, the, the growth, I mean, the only or the age groups that are growing are the older age groups. You know, we're seeing more 55-year-olds and 50-year-olds and 60-year-olds, but seeing fewer in that, you know, millennial area in the 20s and, and stuff. So that's why our focus right now, one of our major focus areas is on youth, so we can get some new people into the sport. And that's also why we are embarking upon a very, very strong marketing program to runners, because, you know, runners uh, transcend into triathlon. Most of the triathletes have come from a running background. And uh, we're going to go after runners in a very, very strong way. Yeah, I think that's smart. That's what happened to me. And I think that's what Bob Babbage calls the orthopedic reality of running. That you <laughs> just can't keep running. For... It's, funny, it's funny you mentioned Bob Babbage because I talked about our strategic planning efforts. And, and Bob was part of our working group on that. So... You know, we tapped into our community. We didn't just use our staff or our board of directors. I reached out to 10 people from various uh, parts of the United States and with various backgrounds to help give us our ideas and give us feedback and give us input into our plan. And Bob Abbott was one of those key people. Yeah. Do you think that uh, one of the reasons that people, millennials, aren't getting into triathlon as much as uh, they could and we want them to is that for people that are maybe still studying or have recently graduated that the cost is prohibitive from starting triathlon because uh, maybe they are believe that you need a five thousand dollar bike or something to to participate or <laughs> we, what's your thoughts about that we, we definitely see the economics as a barrier to triathlon it is a problem and it's also one of those reasons why our marketing efforts are also going to show how easy it is to get into triathlon, that you don't have to do an Ironman, that you don't have to have a $5,000 bike, and you don't have to train 20 hours a week. You know, you can go out and, you know, on six or eight hours a week, doing a couple workouts, you know, doing a couple runs, couple swims, couple bikes, you can easily do a sprint triathlon, you know, in, in a short period of time. I think that's very important. As far as understanding and figuring out the millennials, Oh my, I mean, good luck with that. I mean, I've been at conferences and I've read, you know, lots about it. You know, I have between Jody and I, we have four sons who come close to falling in that, that range. And, you know, they're all over the board. They're enjoying life. They're having fun. They're doing a lot of different things. Uh, nothing with a strong, strong commitment. And, uh, you know, I think it's awesome. But none of our, our kids personify what a triathlete would, would be or do. And uh, yeah, that's a, that's a challenging area. And that's why we're not focusing on the millennials, quite frankly. That's why we're looking at youth, younger. When we talk youth, we're talking high school and, and younger, you know, teenagers, not people in their 20s and early 30s, because uh, quite frankly, I, I can't figure them out. And I don't know anyone who has really defined how to attract them. But economics is certainly, certainly an issue. We know that there is a social factor. I shouldn't, you know, totally say we don't understand. It is about community. It's about social. It's about doing things with friends. And, and that's another thing we're emphasizing. So a race that I'm associated with here in Tucson, you know, it's only going to be relay teams. 
we're not going to, you know, you can't sign up for this event as an individual. You have to be on a relay team. So, you know, a three-person team. And, you know, we're trying to, again, capitalize upon this concept of community, which I think is important to millennials and to others. Yeah, I think that's a great idea with relay teams and uh, really focusing on that social aspect. That's one of the, I don't know, Swim Run has, it's kind of uh, made an entrance in, in the United States as yeah. well, but it's pretty, yeah. pretty small there, I, I guess. But here in Finland and in Scandinavia, it's uh, big and it's growing. And I think one of the main reasons is that team aspect of it, that you're doing it in pairs. So that's that's something that people mm -hmm. really enjoy with that Absolutely. Sport. And and myself, coming from an adventure racing background where we always race as a team, there's something special about being part of a team. And the people I've spoken with who have done the swim runs over in Scandinavia, in fact, uh, have raved about it. And they love that aspect. Yeah. And one more thing about the millennials, though, I was actually, we're having a bank holiday here today. So I'm off even if it's a Monday. And yesterday was one of our main like holidays or parties in, in Finland. And I was at a party and saw some friends from uh, that I haven't seen in a couple of years. So they're my age, they're basically they're around 25. And that was actually I heard that one of them is going to her first triathlons this summer or triathlon one of them but another friend of hers uh, dragged her into her and and that other friend is completely new as well and that's basically the first encounter i've had in in the years that i've been in triathlon of anybody of my age except for those that are kind of doing what i do and really trying to be as good as they possibly can but mm -hmm. doing it like more recreationally and that's i was so happy to hear that that it seems to at least a few people are getting into it that way, even though they're still studying and, and are right. that millennial age group. I hope we hear more and more about that, because that's what we need to, to emphasize. You know, we need to get away from the concept of having to do an Ironman to be a triathlete, that you have to have a very expensive bike, that you got to be competitive. It can be fun. And it's such a reward when you cross that finish line, a feeling of accomplishment, feeling confidence, and, uh, and you can have fun doing it. So no doubt about it. Yeah. And on the flip side of things, though, you do have at the, in the US and at the USAT a really excellent uh, elite development program. We so do. can you talk a bit about that and how you have grown that program to yeah, become so successful? Absolutely. I'm, I'm really proud of that because, you know, we haven't been, you know, the strongest country necessarily in the world competitively over the years. You know, when you look at Australia, New Zealand, Spain, Great Britain, et cetera, you know, since the Olympics started 18 years ago, you know, we had until this last one, we'd only had one bronze medal. And we have put together, I think, a really fine development program here in the States. We had Barb Lindquist, one of our Olympians from years past, one of the great swimmers in our sport. We put her in charge of this task of finding uh, great swim runners. You know, our co our collegiate program here is anyone who listens to any of the ITU races or watches them on online or on TV listens to Barry Shepley talk about our university swim programs. And, you know, we have hundreds and hundreds and thousands of colleges across the United States with great swim programs. And we felt if you could find a you know great swimmer, collegiate level swimmer with a collegiate level running background or strong high school cross country, you know get that person, help develop them, and and teach them how to bike. You know because you know they'd have the engine already and teach them the biking skills. We might be successful, and that has definitely happened. And the certainly the best example is Gwen Jorgensen, uh, who was you know founded in this college, what we call a college recruitment program. 
and and others. I mean, you know, Katie Zafaris, Renee Tomlin, Kirsten Cas- Kristen Casper, you know, Summer Cook. These are all great collegiate swim runners who have come up through our program. It's made our women's program the best in the world, the strongest in the world. We could have had two teams represented at Rio based on the qualification standards, uh, two teams of three. It hasn't translated on our men's side. And so while we have had a few men come through our ranks who could have been right at the top, ran into issues, Lucas Verbiskis has you know, had a bad bike crash, he was definitely capable of running with anybody in the world. Uh, Kevin McDowell, at the age of, I think, 21 or 22, had to deal with a cancer issue. He's on his comeback trail. But, you know, just like when I look at Brett Sutton and Siri Lindley as, as you know, coaches, and they, they have been very, very successful on the women's side, they haven't been quite as successful on the men's side. And I think we're running into that same challenge, trying to figure out those buttons and that need to be pushed on men. There's clearly a gender difference in how athletes react to coaching and to development, and it's a, it's quite a bit harder on the men's side, we're finding. So we've made some adjustments. We've made some changes. We have some different direction that we're going in, and uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of where it's at. We've got a huge program. I mean, our youth program, our juniors program, you know, I think you see it all the time when we go to world championships, et cetera. We've got, you know, a lot of great young people. Uh, on the men's side, you know, when you rattle off Javier Gomez, Mario Mola, Richard Murray, the Brownleys, et cetera, their, their top end speed is just insane. And uh, we haven't been able to match that yet. Yeah, I was going to say the competition has maybe been a bit more difficult on the men's side as well. So that that may be one contributing factor. Are you able to talk at anything about those differences that you are now implementing on the men's side compared to the women's side? Well, you know, here's the deal. So we had this great young triathlete who had been competing with Lucas and with Kevin six years ago at the junior level. Tony, I always butcher his last name, Smorgowitz, I think, something like that. As competitive as anyone around the world, you know, when he was 15, 16 years old. He then gets a running scholarship to the University of Michigan and, you know, goes to Michigan for four years on a running scholarship. He now has graduated and he's coming back into triathlon. You know, we're hopeful that someone like that is going to be, you know, going to go to the top level again. He has all the capabilities in the world. However, what we're thinking is, you know, we've got to help some of these male athletes go to college and stay with triathlon through college instead of going into a swimming program or going into a running program. As you may know, you know, our women's, you know, we're starting an NCAA collegiate women's program where women can get full scholarships going to certain schools to do triathlon. You know, Arizona State University won the national championship this year, and they've got, you know, eight or 10 girls who are getting full scholarships, or several of them getting full scholarships to go to college and do triathlon while getting an education. We're not doing that on the men's side, and that's a, what we call a Title IX issue. It's complicated. It's, it's a gender equality program that the United States implemented many years ago. But, you know, maybe we need to help some male athletes go to college but stay with triathlon. So that's, you know, certainly something we're looking at. There may be different standards for men. But, yeah, nothing, nothing super radical and nothing that uh, I'm able to talk about at this point, quite frankly. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. One more thing that 
I wanted to talk with you about is adventure racing, because as you alluded to earlier, you have a very strong adventure racing background. So mm-hmm. really, the mic is yours. Take it away and talk about adventure racing. Oh, my God. You know, my whole life was changed in January of 1998. You know, I had a Very, very, very big business career. I was senior vice president for a $7 billion corporation, hugely successful, you know, doing the usual living on a golf course, belonging in a country club, all that crap. Got fired. Our entire executive team was, was let go on a Monday, which I'll never forget. And, you know, I was like in Colorado figuring out, oh, okay, now what do I do? And you know, I had the ability to to wait a while and decide what I was going to do. And I, you know, kind of like how people say they get in a triathlon because they saw Iron Man on television. Well, I saw Eco Challenge on television. It was like, oh my God, that's like the most incredible thing in the world. You know, five to 10 days of racing out in the middle of nowhere with teammates and doing every kind of possible sport. And, you know, at that point I was just a triathlete. I had, you know, I hadn't done anything else. Can you, um, sorry uh, to interrupt, can you, just for the listeners that may not even know what adventure racing is, yeah. can you give a quick overview of that? Yeah, sure. Well, adventure racing, it's defined as an event, what you do as a team, and it can include any physical activity that is non-motorized. So you may go and, you know, you might ride horses or even camels in Morocco Uh, you might ice climb, you might rappel off a giant mountain, or you may have to jumar up a, a huge cliff. Whitewater rafting, whitewater canoeing, whitewater swimming, trekking. We didn't call it running because you'd be going for, you know, 40, 50, 60 kilometers at a time. Mountain biking, lots of mountain biking. The essence of the sport is definitely trekking, mountain biking, and uh, whitewater or some type of paddling. But there were all kinds of other activities. Inline skating we did in China, for example. And these races, you know, it began really big. It started with the Ray Galois, which was French-driven, uh, but it then transcended into Eco Challenge. And Mark Burnett founded Eco Challenge. He's the guy now who, you know, is famous for The Apprentice and for Survivor and many successful TV shows. But he really started with Eco Challenge. And, you know, we did races around the world. And yeah, that's what I got into. I, I, I saw it on TV and then I went to hear a couple people speak about it. And I said to them, hey, can I play with you guys? And literally. And and I started going out with them on on bike rides and runs. And I, I like I said, I'd never done, I'd never been on a mountain bike. I'd never paddled a boat. I'd never had a rope or a harness around my waist. And in a matter of months, I was adventure racing with this group. And by the end of the year, was doing uh, expedition races, which are, you know, five to 10 day races where you carry all your own stuff between checkpoints. You had to do all your own navigation, no GPS, no marked trails. You just plot the course. They give you the checkpoints where you have to be. And you go from point to point. You have to find your way by map and compass. And that was, it, was, it was crazy stuff. I ended up co-writing the first book on the sport which was called Adventure Racing, The Ultimate Guide. And Liz and I, my partner in training and racing, we traveled to over 20, 25 countries over six uh, years uh, racing full time. That's that's all we did. And we put on camps ourselves, teaching people how to adventure race. And we put on some small races in Colorado, 24-hour races. And yeah, I mean, we, we helped to a small degree grow the sport here in the United States. But mainly we were playing for 
those six years all over the place having a blast. Today, it's a much lesser known sport because Eco Challenge went away. I mean, Mark Burnett was amazing. He had it on television, and it was you know the most amazing racing ever, in my opinion. <laughs> Loved it. Yeah, I know that he went into a bit of a lull after uh, after Eco Challenge went mm -hmm. away. But are there how how many races are there available to to people in different parts of of the world at the moment? You know, Is I don't follow it. I don't anyway? follow it that much, but I I know there's still a World Championship Series. So people are still doing those long expedition races, but without it being on television and without it getting the proper media, it's not nearly as big. Here in the States, there are smaller 24-hour races around the United States, but again, I don't hear about it or see see too much about it. The One of the keys I should point out is you're racing continuously. So sleep, you, you sleep as little as possible. Our team always had a rule that we would race the first 40 hours without sleeping. So we went almost two days without sleeping. And mentally, we, we were prepared to do that. And whatever teammates we had had to be prepared to do that. And, you know, we would do it. You go 40 hours, and then if more than one person is exhausted and can't go any further, you might take a one hour. Or generally, the first sleep is two hours. But after that, it's, you know, power naps and one-hour rests. I remember our last... One of our final races, we went seven days on about 11 hours sleep. So sleep deprivation and how you manage sleep was really critical to the success of a team. Pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah, that, that's definitely crazy. Yeah. 11 hours and seven days. Yeah. One more question about going back to triathlon before yes. we go into the rapid question segment. Uh, when you look into that crystal ball over there on your desk and you look at triathlon 10 years from now what do you see what do you think triathlon will be like oh that's a that's a really really tough question i i think you know i can address it here in the united states i think it will be a collegiate program much like track and field and cross country i think it will be a a really trademark program of the olympics I think that it will be much more viewed on, on regular media, what we call mainstream media, as opposed to just, you know, Triathlete Magazine or, you know, online. I look toward women in leadership and women being in, in critical and important positions within triathlon leadership, like now Marisol Casado being the president. And yeah, I, I see it very vibrant, very strong. And again, I can only, you know, not only speak for the United States, but here in the United States, having it be a very strong collegiate program where kids can go to college on a football scholarship, a basketball scholarship, or on a triathlon scholarship and uh, pursue their dreams while getting an education. Excellent. Yeah. Let's hope that comes, comes to fruition. Yes. So for the rapid fire questions... First one, what's your favorite book, blog, or resource related to triathlon? You know, I am sitting here in my office and I'm looking at about, you know, I don't know, I have 200 books. I've got, you know, I'm looking at Iron Yoga, <laughs> Sports Nutrition, Triathletes in Motion, Iron War, you know, all that, all those books. I, I don't really go go to resources so much. I rely on, on Twitter and, and Facebook extensively. I am big on social media and that's where I get a lot of my information about what's going on and, and what's happening in the sport. Right now, I'm reading a tremendous book called Tools of Titans by Tim Ferriss. It's about a, almost a 700-page book of basically summaries of his podcasts and his interviews with some amazing people, and I'm getting a lot from that. Yeah. Do you have any people in triathlon that you particularly like to follow on Twitter and Facebook? <sighs> no. <laughs> 
I don't. You know, I, I look at everybody. I, I certainly, uh, you know, I think Eric Lagerstrom's done a great job with some of his videos and he's entertaining. Tommy Zafaris is funny as hell. I like Tommy. You know, Siri Lindley is, you know, tremendously inspiring and positive. And, you know, I like her a lot. So, yeah, not not any one in particular. I, I, I look at them all, you know, or, or almost all of them. Some I definitely stay away from. I'll I'll just put scientifictriathlon.com in the show notes, okay? I will too, and and you know what, Michael, I've I've become uh, new to to your your stuff, and I like it a lot. I I like the the approach, I like the the science behind the sport. I think it's really well thought out, and I think it's you know it personifies the difference between you know largely European looks at our sport or at sport and the United States. It's hard to find here in the United States any type of of look at sport from a science background, but you you see that a lot from Europe, and I and I do love it. You know, when I went to the uh, coaching, all right, some more connection issues there, but hopefully we got most of that saved on the audio file. Apologies to the listeners if we didn't, but I think you'll get the gist of it. So the next rapid fire question: What is a personal habit that's helped you achieve success, Barry? First, let me point out the technical problems have not been on my end, right, Michael? Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> I'm trying a new you, podcasting stuff. You would think it would have been me being the old guy, but anyway, hey, um, yeah, my, there's, that's an easy answer. My my number one habit, and it, it is a, a very big habit, is getting up really early in the morning, getting lots done. You know, ever since I, you know, started triathlon back in the '80s, you know, it was a four thirty, five o'clock in the morning wake up to train, and then in my business career, we started very, very early in in my industry. And I was always always wanted to be the first one in the office. I thought that was important to set a tone. But now I've continued that by getting up, you know, crazy early every day, you know, generally around 5 a.m. I always make my coffee, read my newspaper, and then uh, get online and, and uh, get current with what's going on in, in the world. Uh, a little bit the world, but mainly in triathlon and what's going on in our sport, looking at different people's sites, etc., and then I work. And then I get usually two to three hours of triathlon work done, you know, whether that's phone calls, emails, texts, etc. And then I'm ready to start training. So I think yeah, and, I think uh, the first two I think the first two to three hours of the day are, are you know, they're always blotted out from me. And uh, I think that's really special time, important time. Yeah, absolutely agree. Finally, what is a favorite race, whether it be a particular race, like a specific Olympics race or something, or yeah. a, a specific event? Well, you know, for me to watch a race, pretty much any WTS race, any I, ITU WTS race, I just absolutely love. You know, I'm glued to the my laptop when I'm not there in person, and my wife and I watch it. In fact, if I'm traveling, sometimes she'll we'll watch it together while she'll be here and I'll be wherever and uh, we just love watching it. I think the IT races are amazing. I think Barry Shepley and Trevor do a phenomenal job of announcing. And, you know, I love those races. But, you know, hey, Kona is Kona. <laughs> so, you know, it's kind of the holy grail. When I was a marathoner, only a marathoner, Boston was, you know, Mecca. And uh, I got to say, Kona is certainly a, a special, special place to go and be and watch a race and be there just for the whole event and be part of that that community. And as far as doing a race, my favorite, other than, of course, all the eco-challenges and the adventure races I did, which were, you know, my absolute favorite in life, the Pikes Peak Marathon is, 
is uh, is probably my favorite race to do, which is a climb of about 3,000 or so uh, meters up and down a big mountain where you get up to 14,000 feet, which whatever that is, 4,000 uh, meters or so, and run down. And it's on a trail, and I, I just love that race. And I've been blessed to do Kona four times, and of course, those are always special, but always a bit painful and disappointing so <laughs> i can't say it's my favorite yeah <laughs> yeah oh that's good that we got we got several of them and i absolutely agree about watching itu races those are are fantastic they really are but i gotta say watching super league this year that chris mccormick put on was quite special and i wish him great success i hope they they step it up obviously to have gender equality with women and and men on equal playing fields and then also you know handling our anti-doping efforts but all in all that was just an amazing event to watch yeah i watched that on the trainer on my hardest indoor workouts i, I say the super league super <laughs> yeah. league youtube videos for that so that I, that would bring me motivation to get oh, through those workouts <laughs> that, that'll do it yeah absolutely yeah all right very it's been fantastic to speak to you i really really enjoyed it and yeah. uh, best of luck for all the things that you do in usat itu and everything else michael thank you very much thanks for what you're doing for the sport it takes a village and and you're part of that so thank you right talk to you later bye so again apologies for the few technical issues that we had in this interview but I hope that you could still enjoy it as I enjoyed talking to Barry. It really was a great conversation. And I think that Barry's love for triathlon and passion for triathlon shines through in this entire interview. And uh, that's something that I think that we can take upon us to really help him and help the triathlon community with and try to, in every situation where we have the opportunity really try to do the small things that will grow the sport and if we do those small things over and over again uh, by the compound effect we will make triathlon uh, a great great sport and we will be able to grow it because it is a fantastic sport but as barry said there are many alternatives that are coming up all over the place and uh, and it has been stagnant or even kind of uh, slightly reduced participation rates in the US at least in last few years so so it really is important that we everybody that loves triathlon take it upon themselves to to try to get their friends into it and make people see that it's not a high barrier to entry sport or it doesn't have to be you can do sprint triathlons only you don't have to have expensive bikes or anything so uh, one thing that i would say is definitely don't act as if triathlon is more difficult than it actually is because it's pretty simple it's swim bike and run compared to gymnastics or something that's when we're talking difficulty so uh just when when you're around your friends just let people know that it's actually pretty easy what we do of course it takes a lot of work but for if, if you want to perform at a high level but but it's actually not too difficult and the barrier to entry is and should be low and we need to make people aware of that. That's the way that we can grow the sport. And that's that, that's what I'm passionate about. And one of the big reasons that I, I'm doing this podcast and doing scientific triathlon to try to grow the sport and get the awareness out that it doesn't have to be difficult. Although, of course, for those that are performance minded, there is a lot that you can do to get to that highest level that you, you want to achieve, reach your full potential. So that was my biggest takeaway from this chat with Barry. 
I hope that you enjoyed it once again. And I don't want to hold you any longer because uh, we have had a pretty long episode and we'll have another one as always on this Thursday if you listen to this episode on Monday when it's released. But until then, send me your questions, your topic requests and your requests for guests on the show to my email, michael at scientifictriathlon.com, michael with a K. And uh, as I've said on a couple of episodes, I have done a lot of pre-recorded episodes or interviews, I should say, in the fall of 2016 and the early winter of 2017. And I have a few of those left, but not too many. So I'm coming to a point where I'm doing more and more interviews now that will be released soon, starting May, late May, early June 2017. Like this one with Barry, which I wanted to get out quickly because I just think it's so important to get this one out immediately. But anyway, feedback's our request for guests is something that I would really appreciate at this time. Other than that, I don't have too much more to add today. I hope that you have an excellent week of training. Thank you so much for listening to the show. That triathlon show is nothing without you, the listeners. So I want you to know that I really appreciate that. The show notes for this episode will be available soon on thattriathlonshow.com. And in the meantime, Remember to subscribe to the show so that you automatically get all the new episodes once they are released, which is on Mondays and Thursdays, Eastern European time in the morning at 8 o'clock. And I'm proud that I've been able to stick to that schedule for many, many weeks now. So I hope that you have noticed an improvement on that front. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.